Transmitter device activated. Coordinate set for Earth 2. Hey everyone, welcome to the Earth 2 podcast, the podcast that traverses the DC Comics multiverse and explores the legacy of their Golden Age characters through the Silver and the Bronze Ages of comics. I'm Peter Watson. And I'm David Steele. Welcome back. This is a very special episode. If you're paying attention, you'll be anticipating the 1972 JLA-JSA team-up. This story, published over the summer of 1972, features the return of a superhero team known as the Seven Soldiers of Victory. Before we leap into that epic, which has been months in the preparation and the planning Mm -hmm. and the working and recording, we're doing a couple of preview episodes to reacquaint ourselves or familiarise ourselves with the characters with a bit of an Earth 2 podcast legacy style twist. Peter's going to give you some more explanations. Yes, over the course of the next two episodes, we're going to be digging in to some of the Golden Age exploits of the aforementioned Seven Soldiers of Victory, who can't count. (laughs) Well, we'll be attempting to answer the question, just how many members are there of the Seven Soldiers of Victory? Well, maybe we'll do that when we get to JLE 100 to 102. Mm -hmm. A popular Golden Age trope that's emerged in our researches is heroes being impersonated. Now, if you remember our Doom Patrol episode, we met another robot man that doesn't get celebrated. And when we did our Manhunters episode, we told you a story where the Dan Richards Manhunter met someone who's impersonating him. So Peter's been doing lots of digging around. Oh, yes. In that way that he does. When, respectively, when we can't sleep, I try and find foreign reprints of comics that we're covering, and Peter tries to find stories featuring other characters (laughs) that have similar names. And Peter has uncovered a number of stories where either the Seven Soldiers of Victory either meet other versions of themselves, in inverted commas, or stories where DC superheroes encounter characters with the same names as members of the Seven Soldiers of Victory. Is that fair to say? Yes, that definitely is. Yeah. And so just to get everyone warmed up before the big epic three-part JLA, JSA, Seven Soldiers of Victory team-up, we're presenting six stories over the next two episodes that will hopefully do just that. Yes. So, without further ado, we're going to do a story from issue 26 of Detective Comics, published on the 21st of March, 1939, a mere 52 years to the day before my school's six-year leaving dance. Gosh, and also a mere one issue before the debut of the Batman Yeah, in that very comic. Yeah, is this the oldest story we've done so far? I think it is, uh, isn't 1939, it? 1939, yes, it is. It is. Uh-huh. So yes, the Crimson Avenger. Now, if you don't know too much about Crimson Avenger, we would refer you to our very early episode where we covered the world's finest story that featured the Silver Age Crimson Avenger. Mm-hmm. Very exciting it was too. It was. And since doing that that episode, I've found a few foreign reprints of that story. So maybe they're going to pop up on the socials at some point over the next few weeks. Keep your eyes peeled for them. All you really need to know, be reminded of, is that the Crimson Avenger is the, the secret identity of one Lee Travis, who's a newspaper magnate impresario who kicks about with his pal Wing. So without further ado... We're not going to bother giving you descriptions of the covers for the stories that we're doing in these episodes, but we'll stick them all on the socials so you will see them, don't worry. We open with a large Crimson Avenger logo, the Crimson Avenger, and a nice drawing of the man himself with his deadly pistols, and a caption that reads, Feared by the underworld and hunted by the police, the Crimson carries on the work of defending the helpless. Known as the Crimson to only his Chinese servant Wing, Lee Travis is the wealthy young publisher of The Globe Leader. Now, the storytelling style of this story is very different to what we've done before. You know, Pete and I have talked in the past about how a lot of the 60s stories we did had captions perhaps unnecessarily reinforcing mm-hmm. the action that was going on. And this doesn't really happen. 
in this Crimson Avenger story. It's fascinating little time capsule, so let's see how we got on. So the caption then for properly, I suppose, story panel one says, The power is shut off and a subway payroll car is robbed. And that's what we see, basically. We see a subway car, a couple of men, masked men with guns, in the process of mischief. And then the caption for the next panel says, Not far from the disaster, a figure crawls from a manhole. The Crimson. Yes, and we see him with his big red cape and his wide blue fedora, because this is before he became the, the spandex-clad red costume superhero that some of you may be mm-hmm. more familiar with. Caption for panel three. Astonished pedestrians recognise him and hastily draw back. And then the next panel, we see a, a uniformed policeman with his pistol raised, pushing the crowd aside, moving towards what's going on. And this policeman says, Stand back, let me through. And then there's an immediate dissolve to a copy of the Globe Leader newspaper. A headline that says, Crimson escapes. And some more text that reads, Crimson believed to be the leader of gang. And what looks like $250,000 subway hold up. And we also see a photograph of the policeman we met in the previous panel. And it says, underneath that, we can see the words, shot and subway robbery. So obviously it didn't go too well for that policeman. So yeah, the Crimson already there, very economically told, the subway car has been robbed. The Crimson was spotted in the scene and people believe he's in charge of the gang. So the final panel of page one is captioned. In the Globe offices. And we see Lee Travis, dark-haired fellow, blue suit, striped shirt, the sort of thing that Barry Allen and Clark Kent would be wearing in the 1972 comics we're reading in the main podcast. Talking, Offering a cigarette, in fact, gosh, to a go. friend of his at the newspaper office. The other guy at the newspaper office says, they're having the trail of the Crimson this time. That cop died. Lee replies. That's too bad. And yet, I don't think this is the Crimson's job. First panel of page two, Lee's pal, who, to be honest, in this panel looks a bit like me, wearing a white hat. <laughs> it does. <laughs> makes his exit, saying, Well, I do, and I'm joining the search right now. Lee, who looks barrel-chested and buff, stands behind him, saying, Lots of luck, fella, but I think you'll find more than the Crimson behind this. The next panel, Lee's picked up the telephone, and he's saying, Hmm, looks like the Crimson's in a jam. I'll phone Wing and we'll begin in this one tonight. Another slow dissolve. The caption for panel three says, That night, while Officer McCoy is making his rounds... Yes. Yeah. silent shot of a policeman on patrol and then a couple of bad guys, one of whom we see is a conspicuous checked cap poking out of an alleyway behind him, watching him and take a drink because he's just walked past the dustbin. We then immediately cut to the offices, for want of a better way of putting it, of bad guy gangster Git Morgan, who we see is a large fellow... Yeah, sort of dirty green suit, thick moustache, and he's surrounded by a series of goons, some of whom we'll meet further in the story, some of whom will be identified, some of them won't. Morgan is in the process of saying, A nice job, Joe. Heat's on that crimson baby plenty now, but I got one more job for tonight, and then we'll blow. And he's talking to Joe, who seems to be a thick-set chap and another striped shirt wearing a white hat. Joe replies, You always did have ideas, Gip. Spill it. In the background... Coming in the door is the aforementioned bad guy with a check cap who is carrying Officer McCoy in his arms. This guy we later find is called Tug. And Tug says, Here's the flatfoot ordered, Gip. What now? And then a slow dissolve. The caption for the next panel reads, Later that night, we see a police sergeant out on patrol who passes an other officer. The, the officer says, Good evening, Sarge. Sergeant replies, Good eve. Who are you? Where's McCoy? Obviously not the real McCoy. But this imposter pulls a pistol on the sergeant and says, Just keep your trap shut and you won't get hurt. 
get inside. We can see that they're standing in front of a jeweler's emporium at this point. And as we move to panel seven, they've gone inside the jewelers. They are Sats, McCoy, pistol in the back of the sergeant, and standing before them appears to be the Crimson Avenger, who says, Tie him up, guys, and let's scram. Gosh. Caption for the final panel of page two. As they leave the store, a high-powered car roars up the street. Yes, that's the car favoured by the real Crimson Avenger. We see in the first panel of page three, Wing at the wheel of the car, the Crimson in the back seat leaning forward, tapping Wing on the shoulder and saying, Slow down, Wing. Follow that car. That was my double. They'll lead us to the gang's hideout. Yes, the real Crimson is on the chase. Caption for panel two. In the getaway car. Yeah, we see Gip Morgan and Tug, who we met earlier, the guy in the check cap. And we see the Crimson impersonator, for want of a better way of putting it, sat in the car as well. Morgan is in the process of saying, These rocks are hot. Tug and Slim are hopping a night train for Chai with the hall. We'll come later. The fake Crimson says, I see. We meet at the dugout and divvy the swag. The next panel, see that the real Crimson has emerged from his vehicle, gives an instruction to Wing, saying, Wing, follow their car. I'll meet you at the apartments. And in panel four, we see Tug and one of his buddies. Tug's looking at his watch and he says, An hour and a half till the train leaves. Let's go have a drink. And the bad guy in a white hat replies, Okay, Tug, there is a place across the street. But as they start to move off, the real Crimson appears, brandishes his weapons and says, Give me that bag and don't make any noise. And the guy in the white hat replies, Joe, why you double-crossing? And what we realise there, obviously, is Joe is the name of Morgan's gang that's impersonating the Crimson. A slow dissolve. Later in the jewellery store. We see the Crimson dramatically lit, looking at, into the bag that he's obviously recovered from Tug and the other guy. And he says, Gosh, this was a haul. I'll take this card and leave the... The caption for the next panel. Suddenly, the lights go on. Yes, some police have arrived. One of them says, Put him up, don't move. And another uniformed officer says, It's him all right. But then in the final panel, With a superhuman leap, the Crimson crashes through the shop window. very dramatically. Crimson makes his exit. Broken glass flying everywhere. We arrive at the top of page four. One of the policemen says, It's no use chasing him. He's too fast. And another guy in a white hat, who might be another policeman or might be Lee Travis's reporter pal who we met at the start, says, Look here, men. He brought the stolen jewellery back. Now, why? Yes, we see that he's looking into the bag. The scene cuts to Wing opening the door to the Crimson. Wing says, Mr. Travis, you're hurt. Only a few scratches, Wing. How did you make out? I'm sorry. I lost him on Elm Street. And Lee has removed his Crimson uniform. He's lit up a cigarette. He says... No matter. I have a card here that might be a clue. Okay, a slow dissolve. Then we're back with Morgan and his pals. Morgan is in the process of saying, So, Joe pulled a fast one, eh? Grab that typewriter and come on. And his goon in the white hat says, Gonna rub Joe out. Well, it serves him right, double-crossing his pals. In the next panel, we see Joe, who is also wearing a white hat, confusingly. We met him earlier on in the wider panel where Tug was bringing the policeman. Bear with us. Joe is obviously the guy who's impersonating the Crimson. And Joe is saying, Why, boss, I thought you... And we see that this other guy has a gun pointed right at him as Morgan says, Shut up! Let him have it! Another <laughs> change in location. A guy in a white hat, who I think was Lee's pal from the beginning of the story, talking to a policeman, saying, The guy that was shut up last night said something about the Crimson. Why? And the senior policeman replies, Search me. He kicked off before we could grill him. Interesting. 
The phrase he kicked off makes me think that maybe Joe's been done in by his pals. Oh dear. Mm. A slow dissolve. Lee goes to Morgan's bowling alleys. Yes. See, now, confusingly, Lee now has a white hat, <laughs> so he looks like either like one of the other bad guys or his mate from the office, but he's talking to Morgan. Morgan says, I'm Morgan. What do you want? They told me I'd find Joe Savile down here. Joe, uh, well, he ran into some trouble last night, but he left something here for a guy named Sykes. That you? And as we arrive at the top of page seven, there's a helpful caption that says, Gip shows Lee into the cellar. Yes, and we see that Morgan has taken Lee Travis. Lee Travis's double-breasted blue suit is a thing of beauty. It's gorgeous. Mm-hmm. Taking him down the stairs. We can see the stairs in the background. But then Tug, the checked cap guy, appears out of nowhere and strikes Lee in the back of the head as Morgan looks on. The next panel, Morgan makes his way back up the stairs saying, Now that we got him tucked away, we're going to blow. Get to the station and get tickets. I'll be right along. Tug replies, Right, Gip. A slow dissolve. With a mighty heave, Lee snaps his bonds. Yes, it's not too clear. We just see, sort of see Lee sat there, but he's obviously snapping his bonds, getting himself free. He stands up in the next panel and sees something very interesting in front of him. Hmm, here's that fake Crimson's outfit. Comes in handy. And a slow dissolve, caption for the next panel. As Gip starts out the door... Yes, the Crimson has appeared in front of him. The Crimson says, Hold on, Morgan, and reach for it. The Crimson! Don't shoot! And then the next panel, they've moved outside. Everyone's in silhouette. Morgan walking in front of the Crimson. There's a gun wing in his chauffeur uniform because he's yet to get into spandex. Wing has the door open and he says, I followed your instructions. To which the Crimson says, Good work, Wing. You're just in time. The police station. And then we then cut to outside the police station. One uniformed officer looking down at Morgan who's been dumped on the pavement and saying, Hey, what's this? And another man in a white hat. Take a drink every time someone in a white hat turns up, (laughs) listeners. Another man in a white hat says, There goes the car that left it. Obviously pointing at the direction of the Crimson Mobile, which is scooting off. We arrive at the top of page eight. We see Tug in his checked cap. Another guy in a white hat we met earlier. They're obviously at the station because the guy in a white hat is saying, We better get on. The boss will show up. Yeah, I'm getting nervous standing here. And then in panel two, we see they have indeed gone onto the train, but the Crimson has appeared. Crimson's pointing his gun at Tug and saying, Climb right down this side, gents, with your hands up. To which Tug replies, Jeez, the Crimson! Which might be the favorite, my favourite line in the entire history of the podcast. <laughs> or at least since Ray Palmer talked about taking Jean for a nice seafood dinner. <laughs> I don't think you'll ever talk that. <laughs> we could insert a flashback here if we felt like it. Anyway, don't give me more work. No, okay, just kidding. <laughs> the next panel... Crimson and Wing are standing there because Tug and the other guy in the white hat stepped down from the train. Crimson has his guns pointed and he says, Get their guns, Wing, then single file into that freight office. Yes, going to the freight office in the next panel. So a guy with a waistcoat and a tie and one of those little sort of headgear type things with a visor. Yeah. You used to always see in old films and stuff. There's a calendar behind him. We can't really see what month it is, but it's the 7th. I think it's March. Is it? Yeah, it looks like March to me. It could be. Mm. I suppose if the story was published in March, it might be. 52 weeks and two weeks before my high school even dance. The Crimson is saying, Don't be afraid, sir. I've just caught some rats and I'm going to use your phone. Go ahead, says the man helpfully. The next panel is a caption that says, At the wail of the sirens, the Crimson fades through the window. Yes, so obviously Crimson has phoned the cops and he's making his exit here. In the next panel, the freighting agent teller guy with his little visor is talking to a policeman. He says, I saw him myself. 
He caught him alone! And the policeman scratches his head and says, Well, he got away again, but I'm not sorry. And then the caption for the next panel describes what we see. A long, sleek, Chinese-chauffeured car pulls out into traffic. The Crimson has done his deed and speeds to safety. Gosh, and then a closing caption, which is a nice little shot of the Crimson, looking like he's emerging from a bottle of ink, reads... Don't miss any of the thrilling chapters in the life of Lee Travis, the Crimson Avenger. Well, that was rudimentary and a, and, and a real effort to get through. What do you think of that then? I'm going to travel back to 1939 and buy shares in any company that makes white hats. That was that's fantastic. It was very comic strip. Yes. style as opposed to comic book style but the majority of the story it's like eight panel grids you know yeah. like two by two by two by two in each yeah. page there's slight variations in them but yeah it's fascinating looking back at the storytelling then absolutely you were right in saying it is quite hard to follow some of it because so many characters looked similar and there were so many narrative leaps for example the the scene where lee's knocked out and then in the next scene he's breaking his bonds we didn't even see him get tied up yes and we don't know how much time had passed. It's, exactly. It's an entirely different form of storytelling. Yeah. It's interesting how so much of it is in what's going on is implied rather mm-hmm. than shown. Yeah. But then, as you say, there is that point where when we're told that Lee has broken his bonds. Yeah. Unfortunately, there's not really a, there's not a scene where Lee confronts the other Crimson. No, that's true. Which is disappointing. The other Crimson sees him from the, the back of a car. Yeah. And there is a point, obviously, where, where Lee does impersonate the other Crimson, yeah. which is quite fun. Mm-hmm. That is all done very briefly over the space of like two panels. Another Crimson Avenger. Yeah, it's fascinating. <laughs> so yeah, of course, I mean, that means that the technically that the guy we met in World's Finest was the third. <gasps> gasp, gasp. <laughs> oh my goodness. That? Yeah, the lady introduced in GSA is the fourth. <laughs> Blimey. No, it's it's a fascinating story because mm-hmm. even just, you know, the, the bit when Tug knocks Lee Travis out and stuff, yeah. like, you know, yeah. it's... You're so used to, or I should say, we've got so used to stories where everything is sort of spelled out. Yeah. There's a real sense that the reader is being credited mm-hmm. with having the intelligence to follow the artwork and know what's going on without yeah. having to have a caption. It feels very Saturday morning movie serial, doesn't it? Uh-huh. Very adventure serial. Yeah. And it's kind of like, that's that's what the kids would have been watching, you yeah. know, then in the cinema, yeah. that's, that's what it was on. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, it doesn't hang about, it rockets on, it, mm. it just, it doesn't waste its time on unnecessary exposition. Yeah. There's nothing to sort of say who came up with the idea of impersonating the Crimson. Mm-hmm. We've only got the little guy from the freight office's word that, you know, in fact, we don't even really get the sense that the Crimson has been cleared because that policeman says no. at the end, well, he got away again, but I'm not sorry. So, you know, yep. Was is the Crimson perpetually seen as a as a villain Wanted as a threat? Man. Maybe that's why he changes his costume. Oh, I don't know. He changes yeah. his costume because you know he's avenging someone. We know that from that Golden <laughs> Age secret files about twenty odd years ago. Yeah. Mm. It was nice to see Wing. Yes. Uh huh. As we record this, what two or three weeks after the release of issue six of the Stargirl Lost Children yes, uh-huh. miniseries, uh-huh. two weeks maybe. If you've been reading that, listeners, and I hope you have, you know that Wing was involved. Mm-hmm. Peter and I both kind of, you know, admitted to being a little bit tearful yes. at, the, at the climax to that issue. Oh, it was epic, um, yeah. It was a great series, very, mm-hmm. very enjoyable. Great work from Jeff Johns and, and Todd Nook. So, yeah, if you haven't checked that out, please do. We'll probably talk a little bit more about that series, actually, yeah. when we finish JLE 100-102. Do you not think it's fascinating that Wing is portrayed as an adult in this story and not like a teenager boy sidekick? Uh-huh. Absolutely. When you look at him, he definitely doesn't look like a teenager. He's definitely got an older face. He's at least Um, the same age as Lee. Yeah, especially on page, I think, is it page four? Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, it's only six pages long. No, my goodness. Yeah, mm. top of page four. I mean, he, he looks taller than Lee in a couple of the panels. Yeah. Uh-huh. Does that mean then that the wing who got in the spandex was maybe his younger brother or, or I son? Don't know, <gasps> or son. Oh gosh. You mean there's a legacy wing? I don't know. I don't think so. Mm. Is there more than one character called Wing? Who can say? Mm. I was impressed with Morgan. He looked like an old-style gangster boss with his cigar yeah. and his big, uh-huh. thick moustache. Uh-huh. I think the guy in the white hat who was talking to the policeman, he has to be Lee's pal, but it's so difficult to tell. Know, and there's, there was, there's the one shot of Morgan talking to Joe, who does look a bit mm-hmm. Slam Bradley-esque in a way, with that thick jaw and that does, yeah. you know, mm-hmm. big, thick nose. We don't really see him getting dressed up as the Crimson, although mm. when the Crimson does come across Tug and the other guy, they do think that it's Joe. I mean, yeah. it's gaps are filled in as you go along in a way. It's... Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's all there, but mm-hmm. you know, was it all the right notes, but not necessarily in the right <laughs> order? Something like that. I don't know. So maybe the Crimson reinvented himself as the Crimson Avenger when he took on the the spandex. Then, well, yeah. I mean, we've said in the past how nice it would be if a lot of these stories were readily available to kind of yeah. just dip into. Mm-hmm. And, and I seem to remember when we did our Silver Age Crimson Avenger, I read out a big long thing that I prepared that had the specific issue numbers of when. Huh. Lee switched over, but I don't remember any mention of a narrative reason for it. It was yeah. probably just the mm-hmm. same at the same time that the Sandman stopped wearing a gas mask and started wearing the yellow spandex. It's yeah. just, you know, superheroes because the Crimson at this point is very much in the mode of the shadow. Without a doubt. You know, yes. except, you know, the, the pulp hero. He has uh-huh. his big red cape and a big hat rather mm-hmm. than, you know, a darker sort of cape. It's it's the cusp, as you say, Batman appears in the next in the issue. very next issue. Yeah, wow. so things are about to change uh-huh. very quickly, and it's it's an interesting little time capsule of the type of storytelling and the mm-hmm. style of storytelling. It's very, very interesting. It certainly is. And, yeah, we'll stick some panels of this in the socials so you can check it out for yourselves. Now, this is a little warm-up on the Seven Soldiers of Victory, so Peter's now going to remind us all about another member of this team. Yes, now we've covered The Shining Night before, in our Twist in Time episode, where he met the Golden Age version of T.O. Morrow. Mm. So you can go back and check that one out. But there's a couple of other Shining Night stories that I wanted to mention in this episode. Firstly, there's a story called The Adventure of the Stolen Armour from Adventure Comics 72. It's quite an involved, in-depth story. It's 13 pages, and a lot happens in it. Gangsters swap Justin's armour for a fake suit, and they then try and frame him for crimes. Justin ends up getting alternative suits, which uh, isn't very good. His helmet's dented pretty much straight away. But he does track them down and recover his suit eventually. Yeah, it's fun enough, but I didn't think it was really worth covering in this episode. Another story I want to mention is from Adventure Comics 132, and that's called Sir Butch of Beeler's Alley. Interesting. And in that story, the shiny knight meets a boy called Butch, and they're transported to Camelot. Butch becomes his squire. Back in time. Yes. Gosh. Butch is his squire and they fight an evil mage before returning to the present. And they, they do have adventures together as like hero and sidekick for a little bit. Right. But the weird thing is, that's not the only Golden Age character called Sir Butch. Fawcett Comics also had a character called Sir Butch. Oh. Now this Sir Butch was a young teenage tough guy from Brooklyn who spoke in Dems and Doors. Brilliant. And he spent his time hanging out in Flatbush, stealing apples, playing stickball in the streets, and bothering the local cops. But one day, on the run from Officer Clancy, he falls through an open manhole and finds himself transported to a time of knights in shining armour. Wow! And when there, he defeats an evil wizard called Floda Relta. 
Is like, that backwards or an anagram for something? Yes, that's Adolf. Oh my goodness. That's Adolf Nittler backwards. <laughs> and he's made a knight of the square table before wow. he's returned to Brooklyn by a friendly wizard. I want to read that. That sounds brilliant. That sounds like the sort of thing that, not that I've seen much of them because they're a little bit before my time, but that's mm-hmm. the sort of thing that Sid and Marty Croft would have done, like Lidsville or, you know, oh, right, okay. something like that. That's the sort of thing I used to dream about, like falling down manhole covers and being <laughs> transport, having adventures yeah. and gosh. Again, his adventures continued. They kind of went through several comics. He didn't have that many stories, but he turned up in Spy Smasher and Captain Marvel Jr. as small strips. All right. But he'd fall through other portals and really? return back to that kingdom. And they know him as Sir Butch. And he battled wow. giants, wizards, evil knights. And one time he even battled Loki, the god of mischief. That's fantastic. So, yeah. Who's the guy that publishes all the, the, the public domain comic books stuff? Oh, Guandanalan. Yeah, get yeah. Sir Butch sorted out if you haven't done so yeah. already. As I said, there weren't that many appearances of him. But it was Dave Berg of Mad Magazine fame who created him. So, yeah, Interesting. he went on to much success in Mad Magazine. Right. As I said, I spent more time talking about the faucets of <laughs> Butch than I have actually about Shining Nights of Butch. But there we go. That's <laughs> fine. Very interesting. So, we're going to move on to our next member of the Seven Soldiers, a guy we've met on the podcast several times, and we're going to see a lot more of him over coming episodes. He's going to be ubiquitous, actually, for a while, really. Yep, we're talking about none other than the return of our pal and yours, Greg Sanders, the Vigilante. We're now going to read a story from issue 195 of Action Comics, published on the 30th of June, 1954. Now, a mere 12 days after Paul McCartney's 12th birthday and less than a week before Ringo Starr turned 14. There we go. Don't say that I don't give you your pointless Beatles birthday trivia Mm -hmm. and such like. Once again, we're not going to give you the cover to issue 195 of Action Comics right now, but I will post it on Instagram when we put some panels up. So you will see it there and probably stick it on Facebook as well, let's be honest. So we have a large Vigilante logo to start things off in the opening splash panel, which is a crescent moon in the, the night sky. So you can take a sip of your drink if you want to do that. We can see a sign saying hotel. And it's a rooftop scene showing what looks like the Vigilante in his familiar blue shirt and blue jeans and white hat and red scarf combo, lassoing himself down to fight a couple of baddies. But we see in the foreground, climb up a ladder onto the roof, it's Stuff, the vigilante kid psychic, and another guy wearing a loud checked shirt. And Stuff is saying to this guy, Come on, Vig, the vigilante's in trouble. What's going on there? Will the opening caption that sets the scene fill us in? Through the shadows of a sprawling city races a familiar mass deputy of justice. His famed lariat singing, his motorcycle roaring defiance at gangland. But it is not the vigilante. Who is it? This baffling mystery launches Greg Sanders, the prairie troubadour, into a brand new role as he attempts to bring to bay the the counterfeit counterfeit vigilante. vigilante. Yep. In the first story panel proper, and actually over the next couple as well, Greg Sanders' vigilante breaks the fourth wall and addresses the audience he's standing with with Stuff next to his big fancy motorbike, and he's saying, In the countless cases tracked by Stuff and me, you've always seen me operate as the vigilante, dressed as you see me here. Of course, I play another role too, that of Greg Sanders, the Prairie Troubadour. Yes, we see Greg in a nice fancy yellow shirt with his guitar in front of all the TV cameras, performing a nice song that Peter's going to sing for you now. I miss the roaming on the prairie with the tumbleweed by my side. I miss the western moon and the coyotes howl across the great divide. Peter is available 
at a reasonable request type rate type situation, listeners. Peter's had a few requests already for some more songs. Yes. Etc. Shorter songs. <laughs> he's had some more requests to stop, but he's going to keep going. So mm. yes, Peter appears weekly at the Bristol Lomax. No, he doesn't. Anyway, <laughs> final panel of this opening page. Greg is standing with a already familiar checked shirt over his arm and holding out what we would probably call a bowler hat over here, but mm-hmm. in America they probably call it a doibie. Greg is holding this doibie hat up and he's saying... But one of my most unusual cases was when I played a third role, and this is the costume I used. This strange story involved me chasing the vigilante. Listen. Listen, of course, being that torturous episode from Peter Capaldi's first series of Doctor Who. So Greg narrates this story. Lots of insert shots of Greg's head doing all the captioning. The first panel of page two, he's saying, One day, just as I was about to appear at the TV studios, ready to go on in my identity as the Prairie Troubadour, Yes, we can see a sign in the background that reiterates Greg Sanders, Prairie Troubadour. As a man with glasses and a neat moustache, is obviously the station boss. Another chap, not wearing a tie, might be one of the cameramen, but the station boss guy is saying, Where is Greg? He's due on in five minutes. He's never been late before. And we haven't any emergency show to fill in for him. At that very moment, I was pursuing one of the Rankin mob cars, which was whisking away a murder witness. Yeah, it's a great shot of vigilante and stuff looking down from a rooftop. See the vigilante has rope coiled round his shoulder. Ties from his mask blowing in the wind as a yellow car speeding along below them. Vig is saying, There's a car carrying Maddie Halliburton, the witness. We've got to save him, stuff. The ranking mob will kill him. We're too late. No, not yet. We've still got a chance. Panel 3 shows that Vigilante's taking off his boot. We're obviously showing his spur very conspicuously. Caption for panel 4. I threw my spurred boot down in front of the car. A long shot chance that a bow plan would work. And it did. Yes, there's a massive blam sound effect and a scree because Vigilante's spur has burst the tyre on the car. Fantastic. Inside the car. Yes, we see some goons driving. One guy's driving wearing a white hat, another guy behind him. And Matty Halliburton sat beside them, bound and gagged. The guy who's not driving says, Don't mind that flat tyre, keep going! Bubble crash! And sure enough, in the next panel, there is a massive crash sound effect as the yellow car collides with a drugstore. Vigilante is lassoing him and stuff down from the roof, and Vigilante says, The fools! They tried to run for it! Greg's caption for the final panel of page two says, The car burst into flames just as we reached it. Yes, we see one of the bad guys in the foreground, one in the white hat, legging it but looking back as Vigilante and stuff help Matty Halliburton out of the car. Vigilante is saying, the gangsters are getting away, but our job right now is to save Halliburton. He's unconscious and badly hurt. Sirens, says Stuff. The police and ambulance are coming. Right at the top of page three, Vigilante's narration continues. In short moments, the doctor was treating Halliburton, and our job seemed done. Yes, we see the ambulance in the background, and a couple of medical men working on Halliburton. Vigilante indicates with his thumb, saying to Stuff, Nothing else we can do now. I've got to get to the studio in about 70 seconds. Luckily, it's right around the block. Come on. That is lucky. It's a good thing they went 15 miles away. <laughs> Vigilante's narration continues. Racing around the block, I entered the studio through a basement window, and there, in darkness, switched to Greg Sanders. Yes, we see Greg now in his TV gear, yellow shirt, he's got his guitar, and we see conspicuously in the foreground of the panel, the blue jeans and the gloves and the white hat of the vigilante have been left sitting on top of a box. Nice piping detail going on in this panel, actually. Might mm-hmm. make that one, one of the ones that we put on the socials. There was a slow dissolve. I was in front of the cameras just in the nick of time. 
and the Prairie Troubadour show was on. Yeah, we see the studio lights and the cameras pointing and a TV announcer man saying, And now, we take you to the west, out on the range and the prairies, with Greg Sanders. Greg with his guitar and the TV boss with his arms folded and a very neat moustache and a very neat expression observing... Ah, I knew it. I knew Greg would make it. He never lets you down. Greg's narration for the next panel. But I didn't know what was occurring in the studio basement at that moment, where a man had staggered in. Yes, see, a silhouetted male figure picking up the blue shirt of the vigilante, and he's saying, Hurt. Badly hurt. In the next panel, panel five of page three, he's put on the blue shirt, he has the red mask tied around, he has donned the white hat, and he's pulling on the white gloves of the vigilante as he says, Memory's gone. Don't even know my name. Who am I? And the final panel, page three. Fantastic detail here, because there's the handle of a mop, clearly, and a sink with a dripping tap and a mirror above it. Mm-hmm. And this guy looks at his reflection and proclaims, The vigilante! Sure! That's who I am! The vigilante! And we arrive at the top of page four, and Greg Sanders' narration continues. Later, after finishing the TV show, we return to the basement, and... Yep, we see stuff. We should describe stuff at this point. Young boy, thick, curly black hair, wearing a green and black hooped t-shirt. He could almost be Kid Sandman, if he was a Marvel character. <laughs> yes. And stuff has noticed that the vigilante's gear is missing. He says, your veg costume, it's gone. Hurry, let's look outside. We see Greg standing outside. There's a policeman, a couple of other folks standing around. This man wearing glasses and a purple suit says, Wait, there's Greg Sanders, the prairie troubadour. Maybe he can help us, Greg thinks. Hmm, I wonder what this is all about. The man in the glasses approaches Greg, saying, Mr. Sanders, a patient of mine who was badly injured in an auto crash came this way. Did you see him? Huh? Why, no. And he thinks, Halliburton, the murder witness. Pulled to a wider shot for panel four, and we can see some of the detailing around. There's a theatre which seems to have a show on called Dream World, and they appear to be standing outside a shop now that says Men's Something, Men's World, possibly. I think it's Men's Wear, to be honest. Hey, what if it was Men's Wear? It is Men's Wear. Oh my goodness, that would be absolutely hilarious. It would be the first (laughs) in story appearance of the popular 90s indie band. Can you imagine? There's also a nice fire hydrant. I seem to remember we talked about fire hydrants at one point. Yes. So you could take a sip of your drink at that. Anyway, the doctor continues. You see, He's suffering from amnesia, loss of memory. He hasn't the slightest notion who he is. To which Greg says, How long will that condition last? You can't predict exactly. However, in his case, I'm afraid he'll be an easy victim to sudden shock, which could prove fatal. If we could only find him before anything serious occurs. And Greg, still in his yellow shirt, strokes his chin, looking very thoughtful as a policeman looks on and stuff also looks on. A slow dissolve then. Along with Stuff, I then realised what had occurred. Yes, great shot of Greg and Stuff. Pelting along the street, they pass a sign that says no parking between 6am and 6pm. So, if we ever see any one of those again in the, the podcast, we might encourage you to take a drink. Stuff is saying, hmm, as he runs, it must have been Halliburton that took your Vig costume. He's wearing it now, probably thinking he's really vigilante. Come on, we've got to act fast. Caption for the final panel of page four comes via Greg Sanders who says... I immediately bought myself another suit of clothes, a derby hat and moustache, and I donned them. Yes, and we see Greg standing in front of a mirror. Stuff looks baffled, and Greg has put on the checked suit. He has a derby hat in his hand, and Greg is saying, Greg Saunders is gone for now. In his place is none other than George Smythe, Private Eye. Private Eye? But why? 
Stuff's a poet and he didn't know it. Stuff continues in the first panel of page five. We could just find Halliburton and get the Vidge costume back, couldn't we? You heard what the doctor said. A sudden shock may prove fatal to him. Halliburton obviously thinks he's Vidge and may go after Crooks. We'll have to protect him and pamper him along in his new role until he can be hospitalised. So does all Greg's caption for the next panel. That night, a sedan drove slowly past the municipal building. I always struggle with what municipal. Anyway, yes, I wonder if it's the same bad guys we saw earlier on. They both appear to be wearing white hats. And the one on the right looks a bit like either like Prince Charles or me from this angle. Quite disarming. <laughs> King Charles. King Charles. Of course. God save the king. The craggier-faced bad guy who's driving and has a green suit on says... The valuable art relics that are to be shipped abroad are stored in there on the 8th floor. He's pointing at a big tall building behind him. Cops are on the street guarding the building, but we'll outsmart them. Come on. It was some moments later that the crooks were atop the nearby tower building, putting their sinister plan into action. Yes, we can see the silhouettes of three bad guys. They've come up with a, a method of getting from one building to another, and very helpfully this bad guy, as they make their way along, tells us what they've done. He says... Ha! Oh, good idea. We put this aluminium extension ladder across to the roof of the municipal building and then walk over. There we go. See what you see. Mr. Sanders' narration continues. Just as the crooks reached the roof of the municipal building, another figure appeared on the tower roof. Halliburton, in the vigilante's costume. Yes, we see Halliburton lurking in the shadows and watching as the bad guys lift the ladder and pull it over to the roof of the building that they're on. One of the bad guys is saying, Okay, we can enter through the fire emergency doorway and get those relics from the ninth floor before the dumb cops know what happened. And his mate says, Harry will have the moving van parts waiting for us. Come on! That's the Sanders narration for the next panel. Stuff and I had seen the crooks from the street, and we immediately rushed to the tower building roof, where we saw a lariat snake out. Yes, and we see Greg in his disguise as Mr. Smythe with his moustache, whispering, Shh! to stuff as they watch the ersatz Halliburton vigilante uncoil the rope. Halliburton is thinking, I'll lasso the far roof and swing over after them. We see that he is indeed lassoed around a chimney-type structure at the top of their building, and he's swinging over. Oh my goodness. First panel of page six, Smythe and stuff watch him go, with Smythe saying, Not bad draping and swinging, eh? Well, now we have to figure a way to get over there, and I think I've got it. That flagpole. Stuff replies, I see what you mean. Let's go. And in panel two, we see that George Smythe has leapt off the top of the building and is hurtling towards a flagpole which is sticking out the side of the building, saying, Here goes. As he grabs it in panel three, She's got excellent spring. I can make it. And he starts to rebound up and we can see a crescent moon in the background. So take a, take a little sip of your drink. Greg's narration for panel four says, The pole catapulted me out and over. Yep, it almost looks like he's turned a somersault as he goes flying towards the window that we saw Halliburton climb through. Smythe saying, Sail through the air with the greatest of ease. Perspective of the next panel is phenomenal. We're looking out behind Smythe up to the roof of the other building with the crescent moon and we see the silhouette of stuff before he leaps off. That's gorgeous. That's probably maybe going to make it onto the socials, hmm. I think. Smythe calls out, All right, Stuff, come on. I'll grab you when you land over here. Coming, cries the boy. Stuff followed suit, and his long training and acrobatic work was never more useful. 
Yes, it looks as though Stuff takes a much more direct approach. He just seems to just jump down onto the flagpole and then straight off again towards the open window. Flies towards Smythe's open arms as Smythe says, Let's hurry, lad. There's a rumpus in the next room. Halliburton may be in trouble. And indeed, as we arrive at the top of page seven, Greg Sanders' narration says, While in the adjoining room where the crooks had begun to move out the art treasures. This is a great panel. Halle Burton, as the vigilante, going nuts, jumping in the air and kicking one bad guy in the stomach and another guy up the backside and works of art flying everywhere as one red-suited goon cries, Yeah, the vigilante! Pulls a gun in the next panel saying, I'll blast him! Great panel, actually, that, with um, a nice modern art on the wall behind him in a suit of armour, which um, actually comes to life in the next panel, sliding his visor up, there's a thud as he wallops the bad guy on the back. We see the moustache, which means that probably somehow Smythe has managed to climb into this suit of armour without being noticed. Yes. There's a blam as the gunshot fires. And in panel four, we see that Stuff has a crossbow, which he fires up at the light fitting, saying, I have to contribute something here. Maybe a little darkness. He knocks the lampshade out and there's a splat sound effect, which is probably what happens when you fire at expensive overhead light fittings. And mm. we should say that Stuff has fired a green arrow. He has. So that's a cameo from A Shining Night and A Green Arrow across two panels. Indeed. Can wow. you, you'd almost think Peter had planned this, wouldn't you, listeners? <laughs> Panel five, we see that bad guys have now crossed a rope ladder and are making their way out of a window down the side of the building. The first guy who's going ahead says, Come on, that place is like a madhouse. Let's get back to the boss and tell him the job was a flop. Getting into their waiting van, the crooks took off, followed by a masked figure on a motorcycle. Yes, we see the van accelerating away, being followed by Halliburton on Vigilante's motorbike. And he's thinking, thought they'd elude me, eh? We'll see. And as we arrive at the top of page eight, he has driven up a sort of platform that runs along the side of a building and used that to jump into the back of the truck. Gosh. Yeah, very exciting. As he does that, he thinks, this they didn't expect. Greg Sanders' narration for the next panel. And it was beginning to look like one big get-together on the van as we dropped down. Yep. Smythe and Stuff swing down in a line to land on the back of the truck with Smythe saying, Drop, lad. We're hitchhiking tonight. The next panel is astonishing because they seem to have basically gone right through the roof of the truck. <laughs> There's a, some sound effects like bonk, bonk crash, crash, bam. bam. As inside the truck, we see Halliburton and his guys, the vigilante, punching out the bad guys. Panel four, Smythe lands on his feet, grabs two bad guys, bangs their heads together, saying, Here's an oldie. Have you boys met? In the next panel, we see that Halliburton's down on the floor of the truck. Stuff says, They're all out. Even Halliburton. He wasn't hit, he just passed out. And Smythe lifts up the vigilante's hat and starts pulling at the vigilante's blue shirt as he says, He's probably coming too. I'll change clothes with him and then take over the van and take him to the hospital. A slow dissolve. Final panel of the story. Final bit of narration from Greg Sanders' Vigilante. Well, Halliburton lived to testify against Rankin and smash his mob. But my third role finished, I called at the hospital to see him. Yep, we see the doctor in the background, we see stuff standing beside Vigilante. We see a newspaper headline in the foreground that says, Vigilante routes Rankin mob. Halliburton's doctor is saying, he's as good as new, but he can't remember what identity he assumed while he had amnesia. To which Vigilante says, Maybe it's best he doesn't know. After all, that might be a real shock. And a small caption says, The, the end. end. Well, that was fun. Very exciting. That was great fun. Didn't outstay its welcome. Exactly. They were all very speedy in that episode as well. Stuff was a bit stripesy with his top on. Was there a star-spangled kid in there as well? <laughs> as far as the cameos yeah. go. <laughs> I was just sort of, 
amused at the to the extent to which Greg disguised himself. Yeah, it's so bizarre. You know, given that he's operating in public, does that mean that then it's almost like a prototype ver- prelude to Moon Knight with his double his several identities? So yes. on the one hand, he's Greg Sanders' TV celebrity singing cowboy, and other he's costumed adventurer vigilante, and then he's apparently must- English moustache wearing private eye George, George Smythe. <laughs> Yeah, it was insane. And George Smythe doesn't even use his name during it, so there's no point. It just could be a guy. But obviously, yes. Greg's gone to a great deal of trouble well, to, yeah, to create this identity. Um, What's interesting <laughs> is that Stuff doesn't disguise himself. No, Stuff just not kicks at all. about openly mm-hmm. as pal of Greg mm-hmm. Sanders, pal of Vigilante, yeah. pal of George Smythe. So that's quite funny. Yeah, George Smythe kind of reminds me of Matches Malone. Yes, that excellent Batman creation. Yeah, the other identity that Bruce Wayne sometimes adopts to get some underworld info. Even his Natty's fashion sense. Do you remember when they brought... Maximilian wasn't in anything for years, in the 2000s or something, they brought him back. He was Mm -hmm. on the cover of one issue. Yeah. I remember talking to our pal, Mr. Hamilton, and just sort of mm-hmm. saying, Matches Malone, and we're both like, because yeah. I know he turned up two or three times in the 70s, but then yeah. not for a long time. The thing that I just I just can't get past the fact that, you know, they didn't do anything to disguise stuff, and anyone paying <laughs> attention would have noticed this little boy hanging around with all these uh-huh. these costumed men and thought, hang on, what's going on here then? And also, in the previous story as well, they didn't do anything to disguise Wing. You know, he, he didn't have any sort of mask or anything, and he turned yeah, up in the Crimson Yeah, Wing is, Wing is seen so, as Lee Travis's manservant and, and the Crimson Avengers chauffeur yeah mm. interesting sort it out lads mm. yeah but that was tons of fun really yes. enjoyed that story it's a nice little twist on the mm. the legacy aspect of you know it's someone with amnesia impersonating a hero yeah it sounds vaguely familiar like it might have been done elsewhere but i can't really think uh, yeah. off the top of my head it sounds like it could be another oft used golden age trope if it came to it mm-hmm. but no i really i really enjoyed that obviously we've done a few other vigilante stories and we have still plenty to do mm-hmm. it's nice to sort of see him in action against or actually helping Another version of himself, almost. It is. It's kind of like, in a way, it's kind of like the Dave Morrissey episode of Doctor Who. It is, You know, yes. where uh-huh. someone has a mental sort of breakdown and mm-hmm. gets imprinted on and becomes... A different first, character. This, this other hero. Yeah. It's quite similar to that. I wonder, if, I wonder if Russell's read this story. Russell T. Davis Yes, Russell read T. Davis. Story. We know that you listen. Get in touch. Let us um, know. So get in touch and let us know if that's the case. Yeah. Now, you would think this would be vigilante number two if you are going to be doing some numbering. However, there was another vigilante in between Greg and this one. In Action Comics 112, there's a story called Vigilante's Double. And it's yet another one of these stories where a crook disguises himself as the hero, in this case Vigilante, and he robs other crooks of their loots. Now the funny thing about this story is, there's a character in it called Hap Hogan. Now I wonder if Stan Lee's read this story and used that as a basis for Happy Hogan. Interesting. It sounds very close to Hop Harrigan as well. It does as well, yes. All the vowels and mm. key consonants in the right place there. Mm. And the alliteration and everything. That's yeah. very interesting. Hmm. In our preparation for these episodes, Peter had originally sort of postulated we did three mm-hmm. sort of road two episodes, but we thought, you know, no, we want to get to the chase. We want to get to JLE one <laughs> one or two. So why we're just getting a short summary. But that was a very interesting story. It we'll was. certainly try and track that down so we can have a look at it. There's one more vigilante story I want to mention uh-huh. before we move on, and that is the final Golden Age vigilante story. It was stand-in from the Prairie Troubadour from Action Comics 198, which came out on the 29th of September 1954. Very soon after the story we've just done. Yes. And I was very excited when I saw that title, and I thought, oh, maybe there's another duplicate vigilante. But it turns out that Greg Sanders is filming a movie, and vigilante is hired to be 
the stuntman for Greg Sanders. Fantastic. It's a lot of fun, but it doesn't really fit within our criteria, but I thought it was worth mentioning. Yes, it certainly was. Mm. Gosh, that sounds like fun. DC, give us a Golden Age Vigilante omnibus or just a series of nice collected Vigilante collections. Go on. I'd love to read more of them. Absolutely. And listeners, as we say every time we talk about the Vigilante, you must check out the excellent Prairie Justice podcast by Ranger Gord, who's covering loads of Vigilante material. If you've enjoyed this story, you will love his show. Yes, and Ranger Gord is very kind to sort of give us some assistance as far as the Vigilante's appearance in over the next few episodes, actually. Yes, so stay tuned. Stay tuned. Stay tuned. So, the final story we're going to do for you now comes from issue 172 of Adventure Comics published on the 14th of November, 1951. So to save valuable time, once again, we won't describe the cover, but you've probably seen it in the sources by now. Anyway, our opening caption for this story starring The Green Arrow says, The bow and arrow, one of the oldest weapons known to man, becomes one of the most fantastic devices of modern warfare in the hands of those battling bowmen, Green Arrow and Speedy. Here for the first time, the wraps are taken off a startling new model of the archer's craft. Arrows which find their own targets. A bow which can almost think for itself. You'll be stunned, as are the denizens of the underworld when they are confronted by... The The Remote-Controlled Archers! This opening splash image, as it were, shows an incredibly large... He looks very much like Get Morgan from the opening story <laughs> does, of this episode. Yeah. Carrying a big old-fashioned style metal safe on his shoulder. A couple of wide-eyed and wide-mouthed goons behind him. And there's a weird-looking guy, <laughs> no other way of putting it, with short curly hair and a white t-shirt, who's standing next to them on the street. They're emerging from a jewellery store. We can see the sign behind them. And there appear to be two bows just balanced in the street in front of them, which the bad guys are firing at, and they seem ready to fire. And this young-looking chap with a white T-shirt exclaims, But bows! But no green arrow! It's weird! It is weird, but thankfully there's a small circular inset panel which shows these events being watched on a TV screen by the familiar figures of Speedy and our Oliver Queen. Minus his green arrow hat because he's got headphones on. And Green Arrow is saying, Elevation 12, forward thrust 48 pounds. Ready, Speedy. We'll shoot to knock the safe out of his arms. What is going on? Well, we'd better get on with it and you'll find out. The story begins properly with panel two in a caption that says, One stormy night as two people pass under a large tree. Yes, it's a horrible night. We can see the rain lashing down and striking the pavement. He puddles the couple wearing long waterproof coats out for a walk. There's two male figures on the pavement behind them. There's a sudden loud crack as the top of the aforementioned tree splits and falls downwards. The woman cries, Ah, the tree's been hit by lightning and it's going to fall on us. The caption then for the next panel says, But even as the lightning-struck tree topples toward its frightened victims, a man and a boy nearby erupt into whirlwind action. Yes, the man and the boy who are behind the man, very conspicuous, we now see wearing a long green coat and there's compatriot wearing a sort of muddy brown sort of colour coat, they lunge forward with the man in green saying That's it Roy, shove them out of the way! As we arrive at top page two, the first caption says But the next flash of lightning reveals... Yes, the rain is still coming down and we see that basically the man and the boy, now revealed as our Oliver Queen and Roy Harper are stuck under the tree, their legs are trapped. Roy says Ah, Oliver, the tree has fallen across my leg. 
I can't move. Don't struggle, Roy. It's better if you lie still until we can be moved. And the woman who we met in the previous page has another line as she runs off saying, Oh, I'll call an ambulance. And thankfully she does. A slow dissolve caption for panel two says, Days later in the palatial home of wealthy Oliver Queen and his young ward Roy Harper... Ollie and Roy are watching telly. There's a bank robbery going on on the telly. I mean, obviously, it's footage of it going on, which is obviously very dangerous, but the TV voice is saying, An alert cameraman cut this picture of strongman Bond fleeing from the National Bank. This is his third successful robbery in a week. A grim-faced Oliver Queen says, What awful luck, Roy. The city's most feared crook on the rampage, and Green Arrow and Speedy can't do a thing about it. Pull back for panel three to see that they're both in wheelchairs. We can see that Ollie's left foot is bandaged, and it seems that Roy's right leg is bandaged, or maybe even in plaster. Roy switches off the telly, there's a click, and he says, Even if we appeared in these wheelchairs as Green Arrow and Speedy, someone would be bound to tie it up with our recent accident. We'd be jeopardising our secret identities. Hmm. I've been thinking, Roy... Maybe there is a way we can stop Strongman without ever leaving this house. A slow dissolve. Caption for panel four. Thus the days which follow bring frantic activity to the Secret Arrow Workshop under the Queen home. Secret Arrow Workshop supported menswear at the Birmingham Foundry in 1996. Ollie and Roy still in their wheelchairs working at the, the desk. Roy is saying, I've got it, GA. I finally reduced the TV circuit so that they'll fit into a quiver. You can see Ollie working away with a screwdriver as well, and he says, Good work, Speedy. I'm still stuck in the firing mechanism, but I think I'll have it soon. Capture for panel five. And finally, on the subterranean archery range, a fantastic experiment takes place. This is very amusing because Ollie is watching Roy on a large TV screen, but then the real Roy is only just to his right. <laughs> it's obviously, they've, you know, we know what they're working out, but anyway. Ollie is saying, Here goes, Speedy. I'm releasing the first arrow by remote control. Roy replies, I'm just holding up the bow, GA. You do all the aiming from the control panel. You can see there's a target in the background. And then the final panel of page two, there's a perfect bullseye. Roy cries, it worked, it worked. A perfect bullseye by remote control. Why, a six-year-old child could do it with you at the controls. And the ultra-high frequency of the set enables me to see everything around the person carrying the electronic quiver. I can even speak to him. By radio. And we then arrive at the top of page three. Later. Yep. Green Arrow and Speedy in full uniform sat at desk going through a pile of papers. We can see the blueprint for what Ollie's been up to hanging on the wall. The quiver, there's mention of wide-angle lenses and earplugs so the archer can hear the control room. We can see the bow with its attachments, emphasis on the antenna and television communication equipment, remote controlling device, all that sort of stuff. Mm. Going through... Lots of paper and files, and Green Arrow is saying, Now that the electronic problems are solved, we still have the human problem. Who's going to masquerade as Green Arrow and Speedy, and carry the bows which we'll control from here? And we see the yellow-gloved fingers of our Roy Harper holding up a newspaper cutting. Roy says, Take a look at this clipping, GA. This man looks like you, and the boy's about my size. And the details from this, we can see a headline saying, Home of famed acrobatic team looted by Strongman, so that's obviously the bad guy that we met earlier on. The newspaper headline continues, Father and son seek revenge against robber who took life savings. And we see a photograph of a man and his son, and that's captioned Pete Turner and his son Jack. Taking all this in, Green Arrow says, They're perfect, Speedy. Turner and his son even have a personal reason for wanting to curb Strongman. The fact that they're acrobats will be a help too. 
I slowed us all then. Shortly after, on a lonely road outside the city. Yep, we see the old arrow car parked up. We narrow and speedy inside. And we see that Pete Turner and Jack, who met in the previous panel, are standing beside the car. Pete's wearing a dark suit. Jack's wearing a white top, brown jeans. In the car, Speedy is thinking, while we're sitting in the car this way, they can't see the casts on our legs. And Green Arrow is saying, You see, we've got a, a, a very important reason for staying out of sight for a few weeks, Mr. Turner. That's why we've asked you and your son to take our places. To which Pete Turner replies, I get it, Green Arrow. Secret government work, eh? Well, Jack and I will do our best to replace you and Speedy. And then the caption for panel four. Pete Turner and his son make a quick change in a nearby grove, and then... Yes, we see that Turner and son are now wearing replica Green Arrow and Speedy uniforms. Pete Turner says... Well, how do we look? Gee, Dad, I mean Green Arrow, I'm anxious to test our remote control bows. And from the Arrow car, Green Arrow says... We'll arrange some practice sessions as soon as we get back to our control panel. Caption then for panel five. And later in the Arrow workshop... Yes, we see the silhouetted forms of Green Arrow and Speedy watching Turner's son on the screen as they practice with the new equipment. Green Arrow is saying... Good work, Turner. So much for the fire arrows. Now, take out an arrow with a green band around it. The siren arrow. Speedy is saying... Golly, GA, this is like sitting at home and watching ourselves on television. And then another slow dissolve. Meanwhile, in the hideout of Strongman Bond... Yeah, Strongman Bond, massive big tall guy, barrel arms, barrel chest, huge shoulders. He's working out with an old school circus strongman dumbbell, just obviously to keep in shape. And I'm miming that for the benefit of our YouTube viewers. He's a sort of doiby hat. He seems to be smoking a cigar in every panel. Some of his goons are kicking around beside him. He's very much like Dum Dum Dugan from the Howling Commandos. That's fair. That's fair. I would I would agree with that. Strongman Bond is saying, Ha! Five jobs in two weeks and the cops never touched us. Guess I've shown this town that a strong man can be smart too. And one of his goons, who's very prominent teeth and who I've called in our notes, Teeth Guy, says, You said it, boss, but don't forget you haven't come up against Green Arrow yet. Green Arrow, says Strongman Bond, bending the sort of dumbbell weight and half is oh gosh yes very strong fella continues why if i ever catch up with that tired william tell i'll make kindling out of his bows his arrows and him i've got another job planned for tonight and i'd like to see any run-down robin hood stop it that night on the third floor of a large warehouse third floor of a large warehouse supported the montrose avenue at king tots in 1997 anyway we see that Strongman Bond is using his strength to shove a massive safe across the floor. There's a goon in a green suit, there's the teeth guy, and there's the aforementioned guy in the white t-shirt who we met in the splash panel. The green suit guy is saying, When do we light up these blowtorches and go to work in that safe? Never, replies Bond. You'll be here all night trying to blow this baby, but you'll use your torches for another purpose. All my jobs combine brains and brawn. Watch. The next panel... You can see him lifting the safe out of the window as he's saying, Ah, here's where the brawn comes in. Now, if I dropped the safe to the street, it would sink into the pavement so deep we'd never get it out. And we couldn't get ropes strong enough to lower it. So, how do we get it down? That's where brains come in. And we moved outside the building. And I'm, I'm stunned at this. <laughs> There's a massive structure, tall structure of, it looks like it's been put together out of perfectly square or rectangular or oblong cuboid blocks of ice mm. 
a strong tower all the way up to the window. All the goons are making their way through. The white t-shirt guy's the last one. They're all standing on it. There's a truck underneath with more rice in the background. It's obviously been used to build it. Bond is saying, huh, there she is. See, the boys did a good job raiding the ice house the way I told them. Now, start blasting with your torches. Because they're all carrying blowtorches. In the next panel, we see them find their blowtorches at the ice to make it melt. Interesting. Now, don't try this at home, kids. In panel 5, page 4, Bond is saying, See, how's this for using the old brain? The torches melt the ice, and that lowers the safe to the ground. It'll sit down as gentle as a feather. Then we'll truck it to the hideout. Let's hope the ice melts at a nice, even rate <laughs> yes. and doesn't, like, uh-huh. I don't know. There's a caption for the final panel of page four. But just then... Yep. And it appears to be Green Arrow and Speedy arriving. We know it's the Turners. Green Arrow cries, There they are, Speedy. Let's go. And up on top of the ice, Teeth Guy, with his blowtorch still firing, turns around and says, Boss, look, we've been spotted. Now's your chance to wipe out the archers. It's strong man against Green Arrow. The Archers, of course, being the popular, long-running BBC radio soap opera. The caption for the first panel of page five then reads, And as the courageous pair faces a formidable foe, the real Archers tensely await their first battle by remote control. Battle by remote control echoes massacre by remote control. The death of the original Invisible Kid in issue 203 oh, of Superman the Legion. Yes. Too soon, too soon. Lyle, gone but not forgotten. Indeed. This is a great panel showing Ollie and Roy in their costume, in their super uniforms, watching the Turners in action on the big TV screen. Green Arrow is saying, Blood nose arrows in place. Good. Now I'll aim. Elevation 26, thrust 32 pounds, ready to release the firing mechanism. And the caption for panel two then says, Then as Green Arrow presses a button... Yeah, and we can see on the screen that the arrows have been fired and they've gone straight into the nozzles of the blowtorches that two of the goons were carrying. Watching this, Green Arrow says, Ah, it worked. The torches are out. Now with no way to melt the ice, Strongman and his boys are stuck up there, Speedy. Ha <laughs> ha! That's what you call putting crooks on a pedestal. A pedestal of ice. But... Suddenly, from atop the frozen tower... Strongman Bond is another plan. He's lifted up the safe and thrown it down towards the Turners. Does this, he cries. This will send them scurrying. Pete Turner cries. Look out, son. Jack cries. I I dropped my quiver. There's a crash as the the safe collides with the pavement. Caption for panel four. And back at the control point. GA. Jack dropped the quiver containing the transmitter. The screen's gone dark. It's as though we were blind. But the sound is still working. Attention, Pete and Jack. Listen carefully. Caption for panel five. Presently on the scene of battle. Yep. We see Jack Turner and his guys as Speedy running forward saying, All right, GA, use your invisible arrow. And up on top of the pile of ice, one of the goons says, Invisible arrow? Hey, what's going on here? The other guy says, They don't scare me. Plug him. In the next panel, we see Turner's green arrow taking aim firing doesn't seem to go too well as a crash we see the window behind the bad guys crashing open as turner says i miss speedy but now i've got the range and the next invisible arrow will hit its mark and up on top of the ice the goon says boss the invisible arrow it went through the window the next panel teeth guy says i'm not afraid of anything i can see but this is too much let's get out of here to which bond says well if you cowards are gonna leave me here alone i, I might as well go too First panel of page six, they're claiming in through this 
open window. One of the goons is saying, Come on, boss! What are you waiting for? We don't want to get hit by one of them invisible arrows. But Bond is looking at a puddle on the floor, and he says, Invisible arrows? My eye! Now I see how they did it. While we were concentrating on Green Arrow, that kid Speedy tossed a piece of ice through the window. See? Here's the puddle where it melted. He looks very thoughtful. Panel 2 as he says, Say, why would Green Arrow pull a trick like that when he had us trapped and could have stopped us with real arrows? And did you notice how they hesitated before shooting at the blowtorches? We're going to find out what's going on. And as the crooks flee from the building to a nearby junkyard... Yes, once again, Green Arrow and Speedy are watching this on the TV screen, and on the screen we see the, the goons running through the junkyard being followed by the tunnels in their costumes. Our Roy is saying... Now we can see again, since your trick with the invisible arrows gave Jack a chance to retrieve the quiver with the TV equipment. Here's where we root those crooks out of the junkyard. Attention, Pete and Jack, take out the armor-piercing arrows. Captioned in for panel four. But as two metal shafts are released... Yep, as they fire the arrows, they go flying up and collide with a giant... Well, very helpfully, Mr. Turner tells us... Great Scott, I didn't notice that giant electromagnet... It's deflecting those steel arrows. Yep, and as that happens, we see the bad guys running along in front of them. And in the next panel, Strowman Bond says, Just as I thought, the electromagnet drew their arrows harmlessly over your heads. Now's our chance to get those guys. And we can see, indeed, that the tunnels have been cornered by the other goons, with the one in the green suit saying, All right, you two, don't move. The next panel steps forward and removes Pete Turner's mask, and he says, Hey, look, boss, it's Pete Turner and his son. They swore to get even with you. They must have thought they'd scare you by pretending to be Green Arrow and Speedy. To which Bond says, No, you fool. There's more to it than that. Look, these bows operate by remote control. You can see that he's holding one of the coils of arrows and one of the new modified bows. In the next panel, it's almost like he's turned to face Ollie and Roy in their screen, and he's saying, If my suspicion's correct, I should be able to talk to Green Arrow. Archer... If you want Pete and Jack to stay alive, you'll make these bows work for me. Understand? Speedy says. What'll we do, G.A.? Pete and Jack get into trouble because of us. We can't let them down. But our bows and arrows, working for crime? And then, top of page seven, the first caption there says, Next day, at a special exhibition of rare metals. We see just how massive Strongman Bond is. He's towering over a policeman. Bond is holding something in his hand and looks through the... One of his bad guys looks at Teeth Guy's got something as well. It looks it could be a, a furled up umbrella or certainly perhaps maybe a furled up, covered up bow. Mm. Bond is saying, We're leaving on a fishing trip, but first we just had to come here. We're very interested in rare metals, sort of a hobby with us. And the policeman or security guard, whatever he is, is saying, Then you can understand why everyone must be checked in the way out, sir. Then the caption for panel two. Presently on an upper floor... Yes, we see Bond, Teeth Guy, and one of the other goons hiding behind a curtain. As Bond says, Now that we got this bar platinum without being detected, I've got to break it into small pieces. That's where Braun comes in. Ugh! There it is. As he snaps the platinum with his bare hands. <laughs> now for the brain work, to which Teeth Guy says, The remote control bows and the TV equipment are ready, boss. Green Arrow can see us now. And then the caption for panel three. And as the screen in the Arrow workshop comes to life. Roy and Speedy are still in their wheelchairs. Roy sat at the screen, but Green Arrow seems to be to the right. On the screen, you can see Bond standing at a window, looking out, holding one of the bows, and he's saying, Listen, Green Arrow, 
See that moving car with a bullseye painted on the roof? When you direct those arrows with a platinum attached so they land on the bullseye, your friends go free. If not, Green Arrow willing away says, Better do as he says, Speedy. Caption for panel four. Deftly, Speedy works the complicated controls, and a while later in the target car... Yep, nice view into the car. The white t-shirt crew cut guy is driving one of the other goons or the other tunnels in the back seat, and we can see arrows thudding into the roof of the car as the goon in the passenger seat says, Another bullseye! That's the end. Straw manga, green arrow and speedy to help us get away with a fortune and platinum. What a genius! In the back of the car, Jack Turner says, Now, are you going to set us free? To which T-shirt crewcut guy replies, Are you kidding? The boss only said that so green arrow would deliver. Now, who cares? And he laughs. Ha ha. Capture for panel five. Soon outside the exhibit hall. Yes, we see the exhibit hall. You can see the sign saying rare metal exhibit. There's also a building next door that sells furniture that has a sale going on. <laughs> Is it DFS? I don't know. Hmm. Strawman Bond and his goons are walking out and we see them dumping some of the equipment into a rubbish bin. So take a drink, listeners. As this is going on, Bond is saying, With that platinum hull, we can retire for life. No need for this archery junk anymore. Besides, it might be used as evidence against us. We can see in the foreground of the panel. Older looking man with a thick white beard, kind of thin fellow, pale green hat and a green suit is watching what's going on. He has a walking stick. Caption for the next panel then says, Later, as Strongman answers the doorbell back at his hideout. Well, what do you want, Pop? Says Bond as he opens the door, and it seems that the chap at the door is the elderly gentleman, elderly looking gentleman at least, that we saw in the previous panel, who replies, Pardon me, gents, but you probably didn't know what was in them packages I seen you throw in the ash can. I thought if I brought them back, there might be a reward. Looks kind of valuable. Huh. We don't need that junk. Get out of here, old timer, before I... Hey, watch where you're pointing that arrow. Because the old guy has aimed the bow at Strongman. The old guy says... I'm, I'm not pointing it. The bow seems to be moving by itself. As the old man moves into the room, we see that the other goons are present and they have the turners held captive, sat on chairs. White t-shirt guy cries, The bow! It's, it's haunted! As the old man moves forward, saying... It's pulling me into the room. To that, Strongman Bond says, I'll stop the old fool. Starts lifting up another set of his weights. I'll crush you and that dang bow with, huh? He says as an arrow fires and fastens the cuffs of his jacket to the wall. Huh? I can't bring it down, exclaims Bond. In the background, the tunnels have broken free and are punching out the other goons with a sock. Fantastic. A slow dissolve, the caption for panel three. And so later at the arrow workshop. Yes, we see that the old man sat in a wheelchair not using the stick he had in the previous panels, has removed his fake beard and he is revealed as none other than Oliver Queen, <gasps> a.k.a. Green Arrow, who says, <laughs> The look in those crooks' faces when they saw the old tramp's bow come to life. I hobbled away unobtrusively when the police arrived. To which Speedy says, I caught most of your act on a TV screen, G.A. You were sensational the way you trailed them in disguise. And a slow dissolve. Final panel of the story. Caption reads, And weeks afterward, when the broken bones are once more whole... Pete and Jack Turner, back in Civvy, standing with Speedy and Green Arrow, as Jack Turner says, Glad to see you've completed your secret mission, Green Arrow, but I sure wish we could find that old tramp who saved our lives. We'd like to reward him. To which Green Arrow says, Well, Jack, I'm sure that what you two did in helping round up those crooks is all the thanks that that uh, tramp wants. And a small caption says, The, the end. end. Well, that was fun. 
yes. bit of a twist on the old other arrows and uh-huh. other heroes. A second Green Arrow and Speedy. Hey, I know. Legacy. Yes, of sorts. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, we talked earlier on about the Stargirl miniseries and when mm-hmm. the Stargirl miniseries was obviously in the planning, DC released a Stargirl holiday sort of spring break holiday special was it last yep. year the year before it's about two years ago now isn't it i think it was summer 2021 mm. that the conceit that oliver queen and roy harper of the present day were the golden age versions yes why they didn't use pete and jack turner as the golden age <laughs> i don't know yes that would be interesting uh-huh pete and jack turner there's there's some potential there mm-hmm. you know in a sort of way that they retcon the 50s captain america into continuity you yeah know? Uh-huh. something else could have been done with them maybe i don't know i don't know let's have a pete and jack turner green arrow and speedy miniseries depicting <laughs> their adventures in the 50s or something that's true yeah i mean according to the arrow tv series anyone can learn how to fire a bone arrow incredibly accurately very quickly so <laughs> <laughs> they won't need remote control arrows for very long uh, but what yeah, a great, what a great idea, though, remote control uh-huh. bow and arrows. I wonder if they mm. ever used them again. It makes sense. It's, yeah. To have worked out that technology, not to use it again would be a bit silly. Mm-hmm. No, again, tons of fun. As we always say, Green Arrow is kind of like Batman light in this period. It's the sort of kind of fun tropes that you would get from a, a Batman and Robin story as well. But it's still got a lovely twist to it. And uh, Strongman Bond, we have to talk about him because he was absolutely ridiculous. Breaking up platinum in his hand i know strong uh, af yes and getting all those ice blocks stacked up to melt them down what kind of insane plans has this guy come up with seriously that's bonkers i mean he says brain and brawn but i think it's mostly brawn let's face it strongman because your plans are not great well it takes a special kind of mind to come up with that big <laughs> ice tower and melting sort of thing who built the ice tower well, I think it was probably one of the other guys that was driving the truck that had all the ice on it. The mind boggles quite for How long would that have taken? Mm-hmm. I don't know. I'm unconvinced, but Strongman yeah. Bond, I was impressed by his stature. Like the yeah. the one pan when he towers over the museum guard or cop, whatever it is, it's he's a, a very impressive yeah. figure. Mm-hmm. My friend Ross could probably play him on television. Mm-hmm. You know, the, if we go back to the splash panel, he looks huge as he carries the safe out of the jewelers. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's an interesting idea because I'm, I'm, I'm putting in mind of the, there's a famous Batman cover where. Batman has broken his leg and is sat there in full costume with a plaster over his leg. Yes. Uh-huh. There was slight echoes of that here yeah, uh-huh. with Ollie and Roy. I'm glad it didn't take too long for their wounds to heal, but I'm also sort of intrigued to sort of wonder how many more adventures did the Tunnels really have whilst that was going on. Exactly. Because a bit of time did pass. Yes, you know? a month, another month after so, that. So, you know, I think, you know, we alluded to it a second ago, but I think when we write our DC comic, we'll have to just do it, the adventure of the... Mm-hmm. Pete and Jack Turner, Green Arrow and Speedy, and maybe they could meet some other heroes and stuff. And They could know. meet the counterfeit vigilante and team up, yeah, who gets a yeah, flashback, yeah, yes. That uh-huh. yeah. That'd be very exciting. Interesting. Very exciting. And perhaps someone could find a discarded uh, costume of the Crimson. Hmm. I might just have to do, I don't like the way he's going with this one, listeners, I might just have to do a dialogue <laughs> polish after Peter writes the rest of it. What do you think? <laughs> Thoughts? No, it's not not much more to say about that one. It's that similar sort of like, you know, I mean, when was this one published? 1951? That's mm-hmm. the tail end of the Golden Age, but then obviously the JSA had yeah. finished, publish, mm-hmm. finished publication long ago, but nearly a year ago by this point. The artwork is still really nice. It's yeah. not mm-hmm. too foggy and muddy. Felt quite Silver age in a way. You know, the gimmick of it all feels a bit more like a sort of Batman story than anything else, I suppose. It yeah, was um, it was a lot of fun. Without a doubt, without a doubt. Now, we're going to wrap up the episode here. As you 
You may have noticed if you've been counting, we haven't covered all the seven soldiers in this episode, which is why we're splitting this into two. Part two will be out next week. Yes, as we say, Peter had a plan to do three episodes, but I managed to convince him that it'd be better just to do two so that we don't lose too much of the excitement and mental building up towards our summer crossover team up episode. Listeners, tell your friends it's going to be huge. Yes. Your friends might be in it. Yeah, we've been talking to friends of ours and some fellow podcasters and get them involved. We'll give you some more details next week exactly what's going on. But you might mm. be able to guess if you listen to our Hogmanay episode what we might be attempting. If you have a theory about what we're attempting, you can <laughs> write to us and tell us what it is at the earth 2 podcast at gmail.com. Make sure you follow us on social media because David's got some lovely stuff lined up for you this. Have I? And indeed, every week he'll be posting that. Yes, on Facebook and Instagram, we're at the Earth 2 Podcast, and on Twitter, we're at podcast underscore Earth 2. And it's the number two for all of our social media. As I usually say at this point, if you go to wherever it is you receive your podcast and give us a review, that would be lovely. A positive review would be even lovelier if you go to our coffee page, buy Pete the price of a beverage, or maybe a nice, calming, sleeping balm. That would be appreciated too. Mm. Yes. Do join us next week for some more Seven Soldiers of Victory action as we build up once again, as we say, to the 1972 JLA JSA team-up. It's going to be huge. Yes. I can't wait. Next week we have three more stories with some more spins on the, the members of the Seven Soldiers. So I'm looking forward to it because at this point we haven't recorded it yet. Nope. Exciting. On that bombshell. On that bombshell. I've been Peter. I've been David. See you next week on, on the Earth 2 Podcast. Transmatter Cube activated. Return coordinates set for Earth Prime. But I didn't know what was occurring in the student basement at that moment. Studio. Oh, yeah, sorry. Student oh, basement. God. Yeah, Fre <laughs> Freudian slip. <clears throat> There's fornication going on in that Keep student it clean. Basement. Keep it clean. Okay. Come on. Think of the children. Falls downwards, the woman cries. Ah, the tree's been hit by lightning and it's going to fall on us. Is there a problem with that big chap? <laughs> so much drama. <laughs> um, okay. <laughs> it's a long time since we've done silly caricature voices. I wasn't expecting that, I'm sorry. Well, I was right. giving it, you know. <clears throat> I was speaking the moment's love. I know, this is why, obviously, I just play the ladies' parts. Anyway, <laughs> pardon the expression. And the woman who we met in the previous page has another line as she runs off saying, Oh, I'm caught on that! Oh, God. I thought she only had one line. <laughs> okay. <laughs>